Hey guys, Matt Gurney here for Jen Gerson. This is the latest episode of The Lines Experimental Podcast. A lot of Ontario stuff in this episode because Ontario has unfortunately decided to make itself the main story of the week. A lot of other stuff, though, we talk about as well. Uh, an update on the Public Order Emergency Commission. Krista Freeland leaves Jen Gerson unimpressed this week. We talk about another one of those damned listicles floating around showing that Canada has a great brand Meanwhile, I can't buy Tylenol for my kids. All that and more in this episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. Well, my kids are home again. Lucky you. You sick yet? Um, no, you know what? Uh, this weird RSV thing, not COVID, um, went yeah. through my house a couple of weeks ago and sort of knocked us all off sequentially. I had the almost unprecedented life experience of being the one who got the least sick in my family. Ooh. Normally I'm one of the ones who gets the most sick. I had like a st stuffy nose for like a couple of days. It felt like allergies, you know, when you're not like your yep. sinuses feel tingly, like, and you yep. know, I never got any worse than that. My poor wife, who's a teacher and is supposed to have like the nuclear immune system. She got killed. Uh, my son didn't feel well. My daughter was like me. It kind of, it kind of got her for like a day or two and then bounced off. But you know, um, it's kind of interesting. Cause I mean, I'm noticing this, that, um, Jamie, who of course had a pretty ordinary childhood and went to daycare 18 months, he's like, he, he can't, he doesn't get sick. He got, we all got COVID back in February. He's like, whatever, knocking it off. Like he's Teflon. And my three-year-old who is now just being exposed to groups really of children for the first time in her life. Yeah. Um, you know, she just started going to preschool. She's like, she can't go four days without catching something. And she's just making me sick like crazy. Anyway, I just got the uh, flu shot and the COVID booster today. Your Wi-Fi is going to be fantastic. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, think of me when I'm gone, Matt, when I suddenly drop over dead, when, you know, somebody pulls the switch. and. I think it's fantastic that you got your uh, boosters. And I think we need to expedite our key man insurance discussion. Oh, yeah, I guess we should. I mean, yeah. for when you keel over for when I keel over. It's mine, true. I mean, all mine. To, be honest with you, to be honest with you, it's I only got my third booster. And the reason why I'd been putting it off was just sheer petulance. I just don't want to comply anymore. Like I, I've now had two two rounds of vaccine. I've had COVID pro once and I probably was exposed to it. At least. I got kind of sick twice. So I've got a real mix of natural immunity and um, uh, immunization. So I just kind of was like, I just don't. Like, and also, if you look at the data on the on the boosters, it's like each each successive booster, there's a diminishing returns in terms of your period of um, uh, uh, protection. So like young you're, and healthy. Pardon? And We're I'm young, and, young and, 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 and I'm young and healthy. So I was like, look, I want to get the booster prior to my in-laws coming to visit um, for mm -hmm. Christmas. So there's yeah. a, there's a, there's familial reasons to do this. Um, of course, my my in-laws because their age are just much more vulnerable than I am. So like that's that's why I'm doing it, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and also there's part of me that's just like, I, I'm done. I, I'm getting off. I just, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's not rational. It's just a petulant level of, I don't want, I, I don't want to play anymore. My, my way of looking at this is this, as long as I have kids in elementary schools and a wife who teaches in elementary schools, yeah. I should take everything because I'm going to get exposed to everything. I'm going yeah, to get exposed to stuff before we even know it's out there. Well, and, and uh, I also I forget, I also forget that I'm also 30, 38 now. I'm not actually that young anymore. And like a flu will knock me out for two weeks and I just can't afford to be sick for two, three weeks at a time anymore. If I can help it. You know, it's funny, actually. I mean, look, we'll, we'll move on. We'll talk about some substantive stuff, but with the, uh, 
Ontario strike walkout, whatever we want to call it now happening and schools in Toronto shut down. I couldn't get my flu shot today because my kids were home. So mm-hmm. it's just sort of like when one big news story torpedoes another, like I, um, the, the flu shot just became available for the general population in Ontario. Now, uh, my parents were eligible already because they're caregivers for my grandmother. So they mm-hmm. were able to get uh, flu shots, but for the general population, it's like, this is my week. And I couldn't get it because I'm at home with the kids because the schools are closed. So, so let's, let's, let's talk about what's going on in Ontario for well, once your, your provincial politics are uh, the most dramatic for, for one week. Eh? So are your, your, your kids were home today. Are they going to go back to school next week? No. Wow. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm not trying to lead you on. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a sense of your feelings. There are times when I just start to like feel great Mm -hmm. and to have a really good laugh and really indulge the nihilistic humor of it. That's where I am. I'm not angry. I'm not stressed. I am in a great mood because I'm entertained by chaos. I am better position than virtually anyone to absorb this like i'm in the right up in the one percent of people who can absorb this kind of disruption i work from home i have not total but i have substantial ability to uh re redo my schedule so for instance what i've been doing this week sorry my phone's ringing what i've been doing this week is um working at night the kind of like I've worked evenings after my kids have, have gone to bed. We've only had one one day of school disruption so far, but I've been working in the evenings to bank stuff mm-hmm. so that my editors and, and the line won't notice any difference in my output for the next week. But that's because I'm burning the midnight oil and working. You're, at night. you're, you're and, storing up a uh, natural gas ahead of the, the winter. Yeah, ahead of winter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the, and, the, and the, the imminent destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. So I have a pretty good sense of humor about this. Uh, but a lot of my friends are com- just completely up the creek. Um, people who've just been summoned back to the office, who are just trying to get their teams back in the office. Um, it's, a, it's a big disruption. So apparently we're going to be returning to online uh, learning next week. Oh my fucking God. And there's nothing that anyone can do to sort of literally force the workers back to through the court nope. process. I mean, it's it, at this point, it's a, it's at this point, I'm going to be careful with my phrasing here. It's an illegal strike. Right. The reason I'm being careful with my phrasing is just because there are going to be court hearings um, over, or like over the next few days so i don't know how this will ultimately because, get ruled. because if it's an illegal strike then essentially anybody who doesn't show up to work at a certain point is facing fines possible yeah fines at yeah. first yeah so anyway time to start cracking heads like i don't know like what like what's the next step well, i don't know it's it's i mean this is me just sort of crushing my feelings like the good wasp i am and just sort of saying oh there's an emotion and then eh, crush um I, I'm just being uh, mission oriented right now. Every day we got to get up, got to get the kids fed, got to get them entertained, got to get them uh, doing stuff. Uh, I got to do my stuff. I got to, I, I host a live radio show two hours every day. So I got to tell the kids, don't you dare come in the basement while I'm doing that. Cause I'm in my studio. 
And, um, you know, my, my daughter had a field trip coming up this week. She was looking forward to that. That's dead. My son was having a, his first ever big field trip uh, coming up and shortly, and that's probably dead. I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, you mentioned before your, your older kid having, uh, the, the benefits of the immune system. Uh, my daughter has benefits of memories of pre COVID life. My son, he's in grade three, and yet again, he's not having a normal year of school. He has not yet had a year of public school that has not been disrupted by something. Look, for all I know, a deal struck over the weekend. Court comes down with an injunction. I don't know. Like, by Monday, we might be in a very different scenario, but I think myself and all other parents right now are are planning for a long disruption. And as I wrote uh, in, a, in a column for the Hill Times this week, I am one of the Ontario parents today who remembers the last time we had a long, protracted, nasty labor dispute, except last time I was a student. You know, I, I have my, my heart just goes out to to parents right now in Ontario. I mean, if I were in your position, I would be ready to burn shit down. Like, I would not be happy. Um, but I'm I think not happy. I'm definitely so, not happy. So, I mean, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think are worth um, noting here because, I mean, it seems to me like a lot of the narrative. Now, this is I'm coming at this from an evil Albertans perspective, but it seems mm. to me like a lot of the narrative about what's going on in Ontario is highly histrionic. There's a lot of um, invoking the notwithstanding clause is going to destroy the Constitution. This will end all labor rights and blah 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 blah. And I think that. I, th I think it's worthwhile to potentially in our dispatch step back a little bit and look at some of this in context, because it's really easy to claim that the founders only ever intended for the notwithstanding clause to be rarely invoked in emergency circumstances, because all but one of the founders, I believe, is now dead. Um, and I think I would like to try and get a hold of the remaining one to see what he has to say about that particular claim, but we'll come back to that. But let's remember that part of the reason why the notwithstanding clause, section 33, was considered such a necessary compromise between the provinces and the federal government in the repatriation of the constitution in 1982 was because um, the provinces take the idea of parliamentary supremacy fucking seriously. Yeah. And one of the big concerns was that if you implemented um, a more American-ish style charter, that the temptation was going to be for um, uh, the Supreme Court to use the charter to essentially override parliament to override legislation to um uh make laws defunct or in, in they would have a tool essentially to um uh, read or expand canadian rights in such a way that it would limit parliament's ability to actually govern effectively and essentially when when that happens what you have is not a democracy you have governance by technocracy you have governance by government by, by court by court fiat Right. And so one of the compromises in order to prevent that from happening was the invocation of the notwithstanding clause. And what's happened since 1982? Well, the predictions of that governing by the bench, legislating from the bench have largely come to pass. We've seen, especially in recent years, the Supreme Court has gone further and further and further down this way, expanding the list of what's considered a Canadian quote unquote right, an unalterable, untouchable right. The idea that we have a constitutionally protected right to strike was not actually written into the constitution. That's only existed since 2015 when the Supreme Court passed a series of pieces of legislation that read it into the constitution or interpreted it into the constitution and then set it in law and precedent. So well, I'm gonna take a contrarian position here and say like, Ford is not actually 
on moral or legal pro problematic moral or legal ground by forcing back to work legislation on the um, teachers' aides. Uh, this is exactly why the notwithstanding clause was created. It was to assure it would it was to replace it was to create a check of power on the Supreme Court's ability to read unalterable rights into the Constitution and into law. Um, and he's using that um, power to create back to work legislation, which, by the way, I mean, was bloody common prior to 2015. We have mm -hmm. something called essential workers. We we do say that there are people who actually do not have the right to strike because bluntly their their collective operations and work is 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 just crucial to the to the functioning of society like all the doctors can't just decide to strike and like let people die you just can't you can't do that so essentially i mean i have a lot of empathy for the educational assistant workers here they're obviously my understanding is is, is relatively low paid um and do they probably deserve more money? Yeah, they probably do. But they came to the table asking for an 11% wage hike for their lowest paid workers. And the problem with that is that if you set the bar at 11% for your lowest paid workers and you say, look, we are going to be um, granting your public sector workers increases based on the cost of living in a highly inflationary environment, what the fuck do you think is going to happen when the teachers come to the table? Um, got a couple points to run down. Um First of all, I want I'll, I'll I'll complete your thought on that. You're right. Um, Ontario okay. does have to sign a series of labor deals during the pandemic. A series of sort of kick the can down the road contracts were signed because well we were in the middle of a of an emergency and we everybody agreed let's just lock up a quick deal worry about the rest later. Mm -hmm. All those contracts are coming due right now. Mm -hmm. Whatever your opinion on the substance of the dispute is, I think purely from a perspective of bargaining, everybody knows everybody that the first deal sets the template for yep. all the ones that come. Yeah. So that, for, and I'm not telling anyone how to feel about this. I just think people who are not in Ontario or are in Ontario and they're not paying a lot of attention, you should just understand that little bit of the strategy here. This yep. is the first deal and there's going to be a series of other negotiations uh, in, in the next little while. Another point I would make, and I want to tell you just a fun little anecdote. Um, when I was growing up, uh, one of my best friends, uh, whoever had lived in the house before him had had like a panic room or something in it. Like, and we used to play at the house and I have this very vivid memory of one day of being there with a couple of the other guys. And there's this big red button on the wall. And one of my friends is sort of casually goes, Oh, okay. Walks up to it and just pushes it. Sirens. Like it's just so loud in the house. Uh, the mom comes running downstairs, hits the code, turns, turns it off. And then she's like, who pushed the button? And my friend is like, well, I pushed the button. She's like, why? He's like, I don't know. I see a red button. I push it. That's to me has always been like the notwithstanding clause. Like don't put something in a place where people can reach it. If you don't want them to reach it. And I, I was, I know it's not exactly uh, a, a workable analysis here, but I was like, or a comparison, but I was just thinking today, imagine like one of your dashboard control was like wheels fly off. And then People are driving down the road and they push it and the wheels fly off. People look at that like, well, that's not what that was for. We, no one intended for you to just have the wheels fly off when we put the wheels fly off button on your dashboard 40 years ago. If you put something there, someone is eventually going to use it. And I, I just, I just don't 
don't put a wheels fly off button on your dashboard. Don't put a big loud siren in the basement the kids play in with a big red button that sets it off here. I was talking with some guys earlier in the week and they're like, oh, Doug Ford, this is a Doug Ford problem. No, the problem no. is that it exists. And you're going to get a Doug Ford eventually. Well, but it's not even Doug Ford, because if we go and we trace the the origins of the use of this notwithstanding well, button to to the idea of judicial overreach, <laughs> that's gotten worse and worse and worse. So the the, the increasing uh, invocation of the notwithstanding clause. Now, I, I will put a caveat here. I do think that the, the Ford government has overused this particular tool. Well, we'll talk about I, that in a minute. And so there, this is partially a Doug Ford problem, but it is also in response to uh, a now a a progressive and worsening problem of judicial overreach that it is it is a reactionary response to something that has been happening in the courts for many years now and that precedes doug ford so i you know i i, I don't want to be like the the doug ford apologist here because i i i do think that he's i do think there are things he could have done differently in this case and i do think that he has done that he's he's invoked this particular clause too often in the past um, but I mean, I was kind of talking to someone and he convinced me that what Doug Ford actually should have done here is that he should have actually, um, uh, played the negotiations with the, with QP out to their last possible minute, their 11th hour. He actually invoked this prematurely. Yeah, he had, an, he, yep. he had another three days of good faith negotiation ahead of him and he, he lost the moral high ground by not using them and, or his yeah. grooming team did. And I, I, I actually was, I was convinced by that. And I was like, you know what, if I were in, in the prim premier's office, you would have convinced me to hold off. Well, let me, the, let me actually explain just, I'll, I'll, here's just the timeline. Yeah. So QP, uh, Canadian Union of Public Employees, they were up first. And there are all these other negotiations pending, which is why I said the first deal is so important. Yeah. Um, QP took an aggressive tack throughout. I don't know why. They, they have been very oh, aggressive on this. I know exactly why, because they thought that that, that, that they could get what they wanted because no, they knew I don't that, think that, that parents... No, I don't think they did. And the, like this is one of the things, I mean, it's possible, but... I find QP's strategy difficult to explain, and I don't have good union sources. So I'm poking okay. around trying to understand this better. But they they took a very aggressive stance, and there was no way Ford was going to respond well to it. But here's just the timeline. So the, the QP made its demands. Ford said no. They've been negotiating back and forth for a while. QP stuck to its guns on the demands. There's been some confusion in the press about whether or not they've backed off at all. I don't know. I just know the government says they continued with unreasonable demands. I don't know if they changed their demands and the government still found it unreasonable. But what QP also did was they moved as quickly as possible into being in a strike position. Mm -hmm. And when they went to be into a strike position, the government said on the basis of that, we are preemptively hitting you with a mandated contract because we're not prepared to run the risk of any disruption. So what the government has been saying all week is that if you call off your strike plans, you still have your strike mandate. You've had the vote. You're ready to strike. Yeah. But QP had said they would walk out on Friday in the absence of a deal. And now they're both kind of doing like one of those movie standoffs where everybody's aiming a gun at everybody else. Ford says he won't negotiate until they withdraw the strike mandate. QP says they won't withdraw the strike mandate until he pulls the legislation. Like, I don't know how this is going to end. It sort of um, strikes me as like that scene from Babylon 5 where the war strikes uh, uh, starts between the Mimbari and the humans because the Mimbari open up their their gun hatches and the and as a sign of respect and the humans interpret that as a sign of war and so they shoot first and the Mimbari shoot second and now they're at war. Did you just out outside fi me? 
I did. I, you just out sci-fi me. I've never watched Babylon Five. I've seen some yeah. of the first season. It's great. Okay. Wow, Babylon that's unexpected. Um, anyway, that's kind of what. Thing, but like, this, like it may just come down to a misinterpretation. But if I'm going to assume bad faith on QB's negotiator's part, firstly, I, I think every actor here is operating in bad faith. <laughs> like, I don't think there's oh, there's yeah. no good guy. There is no good guy in this particular story, and the only victims here are the kids, as far as I can tell. But like, if I'm gonna. Fair. But like I actually assumed that QP just decided to go super aggressive because they assumed that Ford would crave would cave. That he that they would say, Well shit, if we threaten to go to strike right away, we'll get our eleven percent, you know, graded graded uh, um increases because there's no way that Ford's gonna risk leave, putting kids out of school. We've got the upper hand. I actually think that that's how they game theoried this. One of the things I've heard, and I can't speak to this, but I've been trying to figure out QP's strategy because it seems maximally confrontational. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the suggestions that has been made to me by someone who is um, a neutral party uh, to this dispute, someone who's involved but a neutral party, is that QP's leadership might be dealing with a very angry membership. And that's an interesting thought, and that's purely speculative. And I want I want you, the viewers, the listeners, to know I'm just spitballing here because I can't confirm that. But what I just did find interesting is about that is this notion. It's something you and I have spoken about uh, more than once before. What if the backdrop to all of this is simple anger? Like, what if that's one of the missing ingredients that's making it very hard uh, for any side to play nicely on this one? People just furious. And it's sort of that bottled up, distilled COVID era outrage that is not going away. And Maybe what people if people are just be, a little crazy right now? Yeah. What if Ford and Lecce and his negotiating team jumped the gun? What if QP came in with not necessarily an unreasonable offer, but an unnecessarily aggressive position? Because everybody's just fucking exhausted. And I don't know, that's just something I think about. I do want to make one other, I want to make a couple specific points about this though. You were talking a few minutes ago about kind of judicial activism and all that stuff. Okay, but there's another part of this. All this talk about Ford and the notwithstanding clause. You say, well, it doesn't take into account 40 years of judicial activism. I have a one word reply. Quebec. Why do we, like, yeah. We just, like, Quebec's been invoking the shit yeah. nonstop for 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 forty years, and it's, yeah. it's just and 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 the other thing that I would just say, like the the, the degree of cognitive dissonance and all this with like Bill Twenty One versus uh-huh. like Bill Twenty One is actually genuinely egregious. Like I don't know what what to tell you. Like in this case, Ford is overriding um, constitutionally protected rights to strike that have existed for seven years. In Bill 21's case, Quebec is overriding the right of a Muslim woman to wear a hijab in a classroom. Like, one of these rights is not like the other. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Like, um, uh, but but that's just my perspective on this. But this is also why I think it's um uh, this is where we're just gonna talk about the 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 Machiavellian politics of all of this. This is why I sort of laughed at Coin's column when he was like, it's time for Trudeau to invoke disallowance, which the federal government can technically do. Mm-hmm. And if you think the federal government is going to risk pissing off every mom and dad in the 905 by disallowing Ford's back to work legislation, you're nuts. 
if the if the Trudeau government was not going to call disallowance on Bill 21 on purely Machiavellian political terms, they're not going to invoke disallowance on this one either. Well, like, you know what? Okay, I think I think you're probably right. But I mean, the- I, hey, sh- hey, man, I, if the Liberals actually operate on an on an actual principle, go to town. <laughs> no, 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 I, they won't do that. No, 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 no. don't on, be silly. Like, co- like, I'm not saying the Liberals are principled here. What? <laughs> One of the wild cards here, and this is what I was saying to you a few minutes a few minutes ago about Quebec. We're hearing all this week about how dare we normalize the use of the notwithstanding clause. How dare we use it? I'm thinking, idiots, like translate that into French and you'll see how stupid you are. It's already normalized in the second largest province here. And then people kind of go, well, that's different here. Quebec is different. No, it Quebec, is, Quebec, but Quebec it, is Quebec is basically its own nation now. It's different, so. but it's the same constitution. Um, the other wild card is that I think Trudeau could risk a lot more bravery in Toronto than he can in Quebec. Maybe, but and like, I don't think he will. I agree with you. Like, I don't think he's going to. He's not going to because bluntly, there are a hell of a lot more um, uh, parents in Ontario than there are. He's been chirpy about it. He's talking but, about and, a lot and, about and it. He was he was chirpy about Bill Twenty One too. Yeah, he'll chirp he'll chirp away. But if you think that he like, I just think the, the politics are so on Ford's side on this one. I I would be shocked if he actually. Well, let's talk about that. That's okay. two of two of the notes on my list are exactly that. So, couple things. There has been a remarkable lack of polling about this, and I talked well, with um. It moved really quickly. Yeah. Like this whole thing moved very quickly. I bet you early next week we'll get two, three, maybe four polls out. But polls can't be generated that quickly. Well, yeah. and also the, the other problem with polling data is that I wouldn't necessarily trust it because bluntly, this is going to be one of those examples where somebody is going to be reluctant to say what they truly feel on, on the polling oh, maybe. data. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I would trust pollsters to at least get a snapshot view of this, but events snapshot. move so quickly that we don't have it. So I, I'm going to be very journalisty coy here and you'll understand what I'm saying. I have reason to believe that Doug Ford's internal polling shows the public is with him. I don't know if that stays static. Hmm. In 1997, Mike Harris had the popular support when the two week strike began walkout, I think technically began. Mm -hmm. He lost it by the end. Hmm. And this is Doug Ford we're talking about here. He oh, overplays I... his hand as a matter of routine. And he could totally fuck this up. Yeah. So my gut feeling, which is, I, let me, you know, I'm, okay, let me tell you this. I'm going to be very coy about this, but I have four things that are driving my thinking right now. Okay. I have some insight into what the government's internal polling is. I have less, but still some into what union polling is. I have an interesting array of anecdotes, which are what they are, but they're not worth nothing. And I have a gut feeling. So viewers and listeners can draw whatever conclusions they want from those. But here is my guess on a Friday evening. I think Doug Ford will have the advantage. I don't know if he keeps it. That's fair. And if he gets outplayed in the comms game, if public sympathy breaks to the union, if Ford himself or one of his cabinet ministers fucks it up, that could change. 
but I think think at the outset, he has the advantage. I think that that is totally correct. But here's the one thing that I will also keep in mind about polling is that it will show, uh, it's not actually going to, a poll of the general public is not going to be as informative as a poll of parents. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because a poll of the general public on this issue will probably skew a little bit in favor of the unions because those people aren't going to be directly affected by the, by the consequences of a strike. You'll get that poll three or four days after we get the first polls next week. Right. Parents are going to be a passionately committed subsection of the population. So if this dispute drags on and on and on, and they're blaming Ford, they will turn against Ford. Like this will move their vote in the end. And if the, this drags on and on, and they're blaming the union, they will want to burn this union to the ground by the end. Like the the the, the, the polling of the parents is going to differ than polling in the general public, and the polling of the parents is going to matter a lot more because this is going to be a vote moving issue for them. Well, the this will be asymmetrical passion. We'll call yeah. it asymmetrical passion. Yeah, and this is one thing that general polling very rarely captures, but it's a really important thing to understand. I would add, and I mentioned my anecdotes, I won't walk you through the whole laundry list of them. Um, But what I will say is that all the people I expected to be hostile to Doug Ford are hostile to Doug Ford. And that's a significant percent of the population. All of the people who I expected to have uh, Doug's back, they've got his back. There's a big group in the middle that I was curious about. And in my own field of view, they are breaking lopsidedly to Ford on this issue. Yes. Yes. I, and that's I, an that anecdote. Me. Like that that's, that's, me. I mean, like kids have but, been out of school for three years. Everybody feels bad about it. Everybody's starting to have the, these going through the second thought, gee, maybe we shouldn't have kept, kept kids, kids out of school for as long as we did. Maybe we did some damage and now you're going to strike and keep kids out in order to get a, a, a pay raise that I'm not going to get in the public sector and the private sector. Fuck you. That's but in, how it's in the background, I think that's right. But I think also in the background is the fact I was speaking on my radio show about this today. I don't know if you paid. I know you want to talk about Christopher Freeland in a few minutes. I know that was one of your items. But on Thursday, the federal government had its fall economic update. The red flags about a economic problem are popping up everywhere. And yeah, and it reminds me of remember how a year ago you and I were like, we should probably talk about inflation and all the big brains are like nothing to <laughs> worry about. It's temporary. It's only caused by these random little supply chain gets glitches. What are you worried about? You crazy kids. So six months ago, we were saying, ah, oh, there won't be a recession. And then we were saying three months ago, okay, there'll be a recession, but it'll be a soft oh landing. God, now we're saying, well, it might not be a soft landing, but it'll be brief. Like this is all very familiar. And one of the things, and this is what I was talking about on the radio show today. We all understand that the most economically vulnerable people feel the impact of this stuff first, and they feel it hardest. But what's been happening, and will continue to happen the longer this persists, is that that pain is going to creep its way up the ladder. And I think that's happening. And I wrote about this a lot during the pandemic. There was a great story. It was the Globe and Mail. And I always feel like I'm being a dick to the reporters, and I'm not. I think they did a fantastic story. But I laughed and laughed and laughed when I read about it because it was the story and it was basically how all of the elite Toronto liberal left progressives who would very publicly have like, you know, on the Twitter bio, it would be like support public education and they'd have signs like I stand with educational workers. They put their kids into private school in droves during the pandemic or pursued Mm -hmm. other alternative education things 
and there was just this fantastic interview in the Globe and Mail. And this was back, I think, in about 2020 with a dad who was kind of going, yeah, I always thought I was really progressive until it was my kid. And for him, that was like this profoundly guilty revelation. For me, it was a statement of the blindingly fucking obvious. And what one of the things I've been talking about a lot, just in this torture device uh, my, the, um, that's being blacked out by the, um, the CGI, but my phone, private messages, private chat groups with, with people, I'm seeing a version of that all over again. Hmm. I've always thought I'm really a progressive lefty and I, I would always, you know, go to the rally for better working conditions, but if they put my kids out of school, I'm going to lose my mind. And I just. Welcome. Welcome. And what, what I've just been saying to people is. What's the word? uh, A liberal is just someone who, or is a conservative who hasn't been mugged yet? Mugged by reality. Yeah. No. Yeah. Welcome. And I, I don't know, like, I don't know. I find it very frustrating, but holy God, you have had a very comfortable life if you are in your 30s and 40s by the time you're discovering that you're prepared to put your own welfare ahead of that of abstract, abstract societal goals. And we've talked a little bit, we've just brushed on this. I actually think QP's demands are not wildly unreasonable. Oh, they're not. And this, um, and this is where this is where I'm very sympathetic to the actual workers. I think were, there's a perfectly a perfectly valid argument that they are underpaid. They, are, they negotiated unions, badly, but the demand is not necessarily badly. wrong. No, they're not wrong. And like, and, I don't necessarily think that 11% is reasonable, but like in another environment at another moment in history, like if the kids had all just been out of school for three years and if their if their if their settlement was not going to set a floor for pretty much yeah. all future public sector workers give them the raise yeah. like you know what i mean like that's that's what's tragic about all of this it's like you know it's it's actually it's actually just bad timing and bad game strategy on their union's part and i think that's just what it is i think i think you're exactly right i think in a different context this is a very different conversation but in this particular context the union has overplayed its hand at a particularly bad time both because the government feels like it can't back down right now and also because it feels and i think it's right about this that it will have not overwhelming public support it will have sufficient public support to play nasty yes um Um, so there's one other last little note that i would say before and i think it's a good point to make before we transition to the next topic and that is expect labor problems to continue and metastasize yes because as we've seen the uh, the cupboards they be bare we don't actually have the fiscal room or fiscal capacity to just you know borrow more money to make these labor problems go away because guess what's happening to our labor costs Mm. they're going up they're going up um, as the uh, uh, um, uh, interest rate rises. Of course, that doesn't affect just mortgagers. It also affects the rate at which governments can essentially print borrow their money. own money, borrow money, yep. and the and and the actual borrowing costs are potentially doubling and tripling, um, which is just adding to the overall fiscal burden and and um, rapidly depleting uh, the fiscal room that we have to deal with crises and problems which are not going to go away. Well, let's, so, yeah, I mean, you, you want know, to talk about Freeland anyway, and this is actually a, a good this, way to segue to it, to but a point it. I will make, and here's the bridge, all right? Here we're bridging one topic to the next. You are, uh, you're a couple, of years, a couple of years younger than me, but we're both of a certain age. Certain one of- age. One of the things we grew up with as a ironclad truism of our adult years, not our childhood, because we lived through some of this as kids, was some variation of 
Canada has a rock solid fiscal position, best best debt debt to GDP ratio in in the G7. You know, the hard work of the 1990s is what is what allows us to, you know, like Justin Trudeau 2015. It was totally cool, controversial in its own way, but no one was really worried about his idea of borrowing 30 billion bucks and spending it on urgent priorities. Now, of course, being Justin Trudeau, he ended up spending 100 billion bucks on bullshit, but like the idea of borrowing the 30 billion, even conservatives had to kind of acknowledge, yeah, we're, we're, we're in a position where we can do that. Yeah. And that also remember, remember the metric, the, the goalposts got shifted. All of a sudden it stopped being about what we were borrowing and instead became... But our debt to debt to GDP is ratio declining. is fine. And then it wasn't. And then it wasn't. And so the era where any government could just basically go, yeah, you know what? Why don't we just spend 30 million bucks? That's over. Yeah. And so you and I became adults, uh, had our early career, bought houses, got married, blah, blah, blah. In sort of that maybe 20 year window, we'll call it. I, I, I'd have to actually look at some charts here, but call it maybe 15 to 20 year window the when golden era, the golden time the twilight maybe. of our excess well when when i mean here i am kind of uh, going back to the 2008 financial crisis here when the canadian government had fiscal bazookas mm-hmm. we fired all that ammunition off during covid you could see that in freeland's economic statement this week um the inflation <laughs> And one of the things inflation does is it actually will swell government revenues because the 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 amount of bucks flying around will mm-hmm. increase. So our uh, deficits have actually improved considerably. Like Ontario, I'm not sure about Alberta. I know you guys have the energy thing going on as well. Ontario is basically back in the black here. Like oh, we're in, swimming in it. We're swimming yeah. sixteen billion dollar surplus. The problem right now is those dollars don't go as far. But I mean, in terms of raw dollar terms, we have more of them. But Freeland's fiscal update this week was cautious. So she's spending part of the windfall uh but only part of it so the era of just throwing as we were talking about before of just throwing big bucks at problems is over we just we don't have the capacity on my list of topics here you had said you wanted to say something about freeland so we're talking about this now freeland Freeland was on the current today with matt galloway and it was just a classic example of a puffball interview not handled very well like i don't know i don't understand how this woman can be in politics for as long as she could be and be that terrible at politics like and I, I will say this as someone who has actually respect for her i think that you know she, she knows she's got her head head screwed on straight she really seems to she seems to be the only buddy in the government who's clear-eyed about where we where we're at geopolitically and economically and she goes on to matt galloway show and galloway lobs her what i think is the equivalent of like maybe not a t-ball you know what i mean but it's still like one of those big bouncy balls that's like underhanded across the plate from halfway forward and it's just something to the effect of, well, you know, you guys have a lot of changes coming between the carbon tax and, for example, um, change uh, increases to EI premiums. Um, is it smart to go th- through with that, given how much pain everybody is in? And Freeland, like, pivots to some rant about how the alt-right wants to strip Canadian pension programs down to their bone. And if we're going to, you know, be sure that you know that your pension is there for you and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting here going, like, Matt fucking Galloway is not the alt-right. <laughs> and this is not, he's not asking you why we're not stripping CPP to the bone, for fuck's sakes. He's asking you whether or not you should be suspending some of these programs until, you know, we know what's going to happen economically for a year or two. And the answer that she should be giving, and that's this is the honest answer, is that we can't afford to. <laughs> that's the honest answer. But she's not giving an honest answer. Instead, she's like, she's she's engaging in this weird partisan, like, 
infuriating uh, straw man rebuttal. And then I'm like, okay, whatever. And then she starts talking about the carbon tax. And she's like, well, firstly, the carbon tax is revenue neutral. I'm like, okay, fair enough. That's a fair point. But then she's like, and you know, and I live in downtown Toronto and I don't own a car. Uh, you know, I, we bicycle and we, we, uh, we uh, um, take the subway everywhere. And she goes on about this completely oblivious, utterly, utterly brain dead oblivious to the fact that that lifestyle that she lives firstly is a lifestyle of extraordinary privilege. If you are living in a city where you don't have to own a car, you're living in a city where bluntly your your you know your cost of living your, your and your housing costs are like massively beyond the canadian average not very many people can afford to live in a high density downtown toronto neighborhood christia so, so while she thinks she's conveying her own frugality and humility what she's actually conveying to the majority of her audience is that she is an elitist who's so wildly out of touch with the reality that most canadians are living that she thinks that bragging about how she lives in downtown Toronto without a fucking car uh. is is something about the car. Like I'm Christopher Freeland's solution to the cost of living crisis is move to downtown Toronto. Problem solved. Why don't you all just consider um, taking transit more often? It's like, I think- because I live in a fucking suburb, not in downtown Toronto, and I can't function, I can't get my fucking groceries in minus 40 degree weather and get my pick my kids up from daycare on a subway system that doesn't exist, Christia. Well, even to the extent <laughs> it exists in Toronto, Metrolink on Friday serves strike notice for Go Transit, so that's fun. Oh, oh um, good. Fantastic. So everything's going well for everybody. And also, I would point out, isn't it true that the majority of Torontonians own a car? I would have to check stats, but yeah, probably. See, it's interesting because you're actually, what you're talking about there with Christopher Freeland is two separate things. The the car thing, I didn't hear the interview, but just going off what you're saying, that would just be a degree of tone deafness. And it's just tone deaf. It's tone deaf. Which, that was the thing that made me angry. And I was like, how do you She expect- does that sometimes. She's, just- I think even my liberal friends will kind of acknowledge, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Like, Christopher Freeland to me is a, is a Hillary Clinton-esque figure. Yeah. And what I mean by that, in, in a way, it's it's flattering, fantastic resume, very accomplished person, extremely intelligent, would probably make a good leader, will never get elected. Just not good at politics and some more liberals than you might think acknowledge this. Some of them are just totally, they've completely drank the flavor aid and they're lost. Oh, They'll I, never be able to admit this, but some of them. I, I think. I think the 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 from just from my sense of the last little while, I think the uh, the tides turned on Freeland. I think that most people in the liberal world understand perfectly well that she can't win an election. I think Freeland knows. I mean, I don't know yeah. if Freeland knows she can't, but I think Freeland has realized she's not going to get the chance. Yeah. Um. The other thing about Freeland is that this is not a Christian Freeland specific issue. This is a politicians today issue. They probably bolt awake in the dead of night in a cold sweat promising jobs for like the great people of Tamiskasing. like they're so over programmed yeah that like so what you were describing before about like yeah matt galloway my fellow torontonian matt g nice guy good interviewer great broadcaster he's not the all right like if you're responding to questions from him I, again, I didn't hear the interview, but I think in general, it, Put this way, I, it was a it was a pretty softball interview from what I was hearing, and that I don't mean to be trashing Matt Galloway or whatever. Like I, I don't care, but like this was not she she was not being grilled here. 
no, but she probably like, I think they're all over-programmed. I think I've told you this in another context. Like when you talk to politicians, this is, I think the liberals are particularly bad at this. I think they're the worst at it, but I do think the modern conservatives are catching up to them. The comms discipline is short-circuiting the brains. Like actually mm -hmm. having your own independent mind and having to think on your feet and coming up with answers for stuff is like a muscle that's atrophied. And the, yeah, but the but the Toronto thing is is a classic example of lack of comms discipline. There's no comms professional that approved that line. Um, she, no, she just, I agree. She just no, thought she was that. trying to be relatable, and she just didn't realize how tone deaf it was. I think. Um, I, I think no, that's fair. I, I I think that's fair, but I just think in general they they have scripts they stick to on certain issues so freeland might have gotten herself in trouble if the conversation drifted over into something uh where she was not as carefully scripted and she didn't realize it uh how she was sounding but in on, on the substance of the issues you know there was an interesting exchange in parliament this week uh melanie parody wrote a, a piece for us earlier this week about the tylenol shortage uh mm -hmm. pediatric medicines and short supply across canada and I happened to be, because this is how I party, I was watching Question Period while I was having lunch. Um, and uh, Pierre Polyev actually opened with, with a question about that, open, opened the questions. The Prime Minister's response sucked. And it was just interesting. Like, they're not good when they don't have an answer programmed ready to go. Yeah. I do think the Liberals are the worst at this. I Like, we used to talk about how scripted and carefully guarded Stephen Harper and his conservatives were the liberals took that up in order of magnitude I've never seen comms discipline like I see in the federal liberals right now and I think it is in some ways making it more difficult for them to react to the unexpected um anyway I, I just I just wanted to rant about Freeland for one second because oh, yeah, that interview, the, the interview the interview just made me so pissed off that I had to be like I need to turn this off now I need to pick up my kid like so I have two items left on my list. Do you want the heavy meaty one now and then end on the light one? I think we should go, go heavy meaty and end on the light. POEC, public order emergency. Oh condition. yes. You're the one who's been paying attention to this so that I don't have to. I don't think uh, our blurb this week for the purpose of the update has to be massive. Okay. What has been happening this week has been a lot of testimony by uh, convoy participants or convoy uh, leadership. I think we're being reminded that these guys very much exist in an alternate information ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And this is something you and I have spoken about many times before in different contexts. We as a society do not have a cohesive shared information ecosystem. Right. There are people out there who sincerely believe totally batshit stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the testimony this week was a reminder of that. There was a, there was also, I've talked with you about this before. I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the podcast. The right wing is becoming as whiny as the left. And has been for some time. Uh, it's, it's getting interesting. So 20 years ago, and this is, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here. 20 years ago, the liberals and the left would have been the ones I feel your pain. We've hurt the citizen had a terrible story. How can we move the entire machinery of government to try and fix this? Whereas conservatives would, I mean, they would normally be prudent enough not to say it aloud but they'd be like that's a fucking people fail like we can't we can't fix the system so that there's no bad outcomes here some of what we've been seeing from the right uh including the the, the far right in this country has just been people like i had to put a mask on and i was so humiliated it's like mm, 
No, like conservatives are supposed to be the heartless ones. Our civilization is not going to work if we don't have a group of assholes who are willing to say no to stupid ideas. <laughs> you need to have in a democracy, you need to have the tension between the bleeding hearts and the and the tightwads. If you don't have that, if it, everybody is really upset and emo about their grievances, everything becomes what you've already correctly identified as as just a struggle for power. Because if you are convinced that you are the aggrieved ones and the other the other bastards are out to get you, everybody's just going to try and grab what they can. It's going to be a free for all. It's going to be looters in a Walmart after Katrina. That what I was seeing this week, holy God, though, some of those guys up there right now, and I agree, there's concerns with the public health overreach and public health, health dysfunction and all that stuff. I get it. But holy God, what a bunch of whiny, sucky babies. <laughs> like the right wing is becoming as w wussy and wimpy as the left wing has long been in this country. And you cannot run a civilization that way. Somebody needs to be adult in the room. It doesn't have to be the right wingers. It could be business liberals. Like we could get. Matt, I theory, got some bad news for you. Oh, I know they're all dead. They're extinct. No, I get it. We are the adults in the room. We talked about this when we started the line. I remember how I didn't to, want to be the adults in the room. No. And for the listeners here and the viewers, Jen and I talked about this before we decided to do this in the summer of 2020. The best job I ever had was third in command of the National Post editorial board. I had to make occasional decisions when my editor and deputy editor were absent. But most of the time, I people left me alone and I just wrote stuff. That was the best job I ever had. I have never had any desire to own or operate a business. But here we are. Because I looked around for the adult in the room, and there were none. And looking at the state of our civil discourse in this country... <laughs> We're in deep shit. And uh, the other thing I would mention, uh, perhaps more interestingly on the POEC front. So I, I want to be very careful in how I say this. And Jen, you're going to understand why I'm being careful. But let me mm -hmm. explain to the listeners. There were three big things in February of last year that we looked at and didn't comment on when we were covering the convoy. There were three big things. And we didn't touch them because we never got them confirmed to our satisfaction. One of them has now come out in public over POEC. One of them that came out this week is that there was indeed leaks coming from police and intelligence agencies going to the protesters. We heard this last year. We talked about it. You and I tried to confirm it and we couldn't. So we never touched it. There are two other things <clears throat> I'm waiting to see if, if they come out, things that I was confident about but never reported on because I couldn't confirm it. I'm not going to mention what they are. I'm going to let the proceedings unfold for now. But this week was interesting when one of the lawyers representing the convoyers on, on the stand under oath testified, oh, yeah, we were getting operational intelligence leaked to us in real time. I wrote for TVO this week that people shouldn't actually be surprised by that. Because if you look at, at the stats in February, and I, there's actually two numbers you can look at here. Something like as high as 46% of the population had some sympathy for the convoy. Mm -hmm. It was not this tiny fringe. The fringe got in their trucks and drove to Ottawa. But there was fairly broad public support in at least some extent for the convoy. And I think we've forgotten that. 
this was not 2% of, of assholes descending yeah. on the Capitol. The other issue, of course, is in Ontario, even with a very, very high rate of vaccination, the number of unvaxxed adults in this province is more than 1 million. There are more unvaxxed Ontarians than there are Edmontonians. There are more unvaxxed Ontarians than there are Ottawans. There's a big, big group of people in this country who just noped the fuck out. How many well, of them and, are you? And then there's another, there's a gray zone, people. And I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about when I was just deciding not to take my boost booster and admitting straight up that it's irrational. It was a rational, petulant defiance. Yeah, I'm just, I just, who... I, I'm, I, I'm so sick of the overreach. I'm so sick of all of it, all of it. Yeah. That I just, I don't want to play anymore. I think that there's a lot of people who are in that. I mean, if I look at sort of the the rate of booster shots, I, I'm not, I'm not unique in this. But I think there's actually a large group of people who, who even though they are vaxxed, they did everything they said they were supposed to do. And, and it never vaccine, stopped. And it, and and there was not there was not a, a commensurate sort of loosening of restrictions and just easing of histrionics. There was not a commensurate. Um, oh, and also like bluntly, the vaccines didn't do what we were told they were going to do. I it was I, my understanding that if we all did did the right thing, took our vaccines, we could get back to normal. My kids could get back in school. Well, it turns out the vaccines actually weren't. They, they were effective at pre preventing transmission to some extent, but they weren't as effective as as we had been promising and hoped or been promised and hoped and they weren't um they, they you know they didn't really do very much in 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 the ways of stopping omicron the i mean the only way that the omicron um uh, variant ended was that essentially it blew through the majority of yeah. us um so which like, by like, the way is... you and i said it would at the very outset we were and very we're, quick and, to react and people were lost it they were just like well that's blah, blah, blah. and i'm just like i don't know what to tell you <laughs> just this is just this is just the facts of the matter you don't contain something that contagious you can't contain something this contagious so like it's but but i mean i think that there's been a real sense from there's a there's most majority public i think is ready to just move on with their lives and and get over this but there's a sense of sort of unresolved tension here and for a small plurality of the population not a plurality but just for a small minority of the population but not a fringe minority there's a real sense of betrayal the government lied to us they did fuck us over they massively fucked up at massive points during this um um pandemic and bluntly that's not wrong mm -hmm. I, I can point to entirely mainstream sources that will demonstrate multiple points of failure by our respective government federal and provincial governments andrew and potter's column on friday picked on arrive can which is a very yeah. small example but the thesis <laughs> of his column which was bang on was that government's don't like to admit that their failures have consequences yes but and also saying like there also, there was also stuff that they did right like oh, they got yeah. they, we, we did procure vaccines quickly great you know but uh, there was stuff that they did right in hindsight but there was also stuff that they did wrong it doesn't seem like there's been any public accountability for that and and there's no been very little public accountability for where there were overreaches um, and I think that that is that is a lingering resentment that we are going to see pop up in the population in very weird ways for a long time to come. Um, well, you know what? When I tweeted out Potter's column today um, as part of my little th thread promoting it, uh, I made the point that I don't think we've reckoned with the radicalization that even non-radical members of the population feel and felt when yeah. they realized the government could not protect them. Yeah. Essentially, I've I've lost my faith in you to be able to function appropriately and protect me. Yep, and since so... then we can't get passports or children's Tylenol, and I think. So you're uh, telling me I'm on my own. 
Okay, that, that's yes, fine. You're, you're on your own. You're telling me I'm on my own. That's well, we, fine. You and I concluded I, that almost three years ago. I know, I concluded that three exists. years ago. So I, like, I'm like, I'm fine with that. That's cool. But then stay the fuck out of my way. I said to Stephen Marr today, um, uh, the great guy, journalist out east. I think uh, many of the listeners, viewers will be familiar with him of uh, McLean's magazine and just a really cool dude. I'm a big fan of Steve's. He was saying he, he was also sharing Potter's column and he was he, he liked a lot. And he he made an interesting point where he says he thinks he knows the parliamentarians and the bureaucrats in Ottawa know it. He says he thinks they understand it, but they don't know how to do about it. And I'm well, okay, that's yeah. Fair. You know, probably. But what I said to him, they have to admit it. Yeah. Because what happens is you get Christian Freeland on the current. Talking about if only you all lived in Toronto, you, you, you would have no problems with the current the right. Yeah. Or you're a member of the alt-right. It's, it's, it's so alien. And I guess that's why that made me so angry, because it's so alienating. I'm okay with governments making mistakes. I expect governments to make mistakes. My bar for government performance is not high. So, it's like, I'm expecting them to fuck up. I remember. Own it. I don't know what to say. They have to own it. So this this goes back a while. This is 2018, pre-pandemic. Doug Ford's election in Ontario. Um, I worked for Global News at the time, and I was in the field at Liberal Party headquarters, uh, where the well, not party headquarters, but where the party was, like the, the Liberal Party, where Kathleen Wynne was going to give either her victory speech or concession speech. Yeah. I have been to more up. I've been to like livelier funerals. Like that was a grim party. Great food, nice people, but it was like someone had just murdered a puppy in front of everybody. It's like, hey, everybody, like uh, the bar is open, and here's Rover here. <laughs> Can you break his neck? Um, one of the things I just remember in the days after that was that liberals that I had known and spoken to for years were suddenly acknowledging I'd been right about things they had been angrily telling me I was wrong about 48 hours earlier. <laughs> Humility in Canadian politics exists in a 72-hour window following an electoral drubbing. Yeah. That's and then the, it goes away, I guess. And then, and then it goes right back to, if you disagree with our vision, you're either a clueless uh, lefty or a fascist righty. There is value in admitting when you get things wrong. There is value in saying we're not doing as well as we need to here. Our federal government, and I'm not, I'm not singing the praises of provincial leaders here. I just, I don't think I can speak to nine out of ten provinces in this country. But our federal government, the one government we all share, is fucking terrible at this. They are really bad at it. And it's alienating. Well, also, Freeland needs to. I know Freeland has already kind of done this, but like. Now it needs to be Trudeau comes out and be like, "Look, the cupboard's bare. We, we can't be throwing. We can't be throwing more money at problems. We like we just we we just can't. I, anyone they won't do it. They won't." Do I think it. even that's different though than here are some things we got wrong. Yeah, like that's true. Justin Trudeau in particular has made a point of apologizing for things that happened a hundred years before he was born, and never apologizing for stuff under his own watch unless it's yeah. blackface. And when it was dead to rights. Does Did you even it, apologize for that? I mean, like. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, uh, blackface. Okay. Yeah. That was, yeah. I, thought, I thought there was something insincere about that apology. But anyway, that's. Uh, I mean, he apologized for elbowing that NDP lady in the boobs. Yeah. Um, he apologized for eating the candy bar in the house. And that was actually a kind of funny apology, I thought, because he. Whatever. Prime Minister does have a sense of humor. He doesn't employ it often enough. He can be quite funny. Yeah. Um, that's the thought. I'm so just like. 
it's just it's very alienating. seems like he really should be a really fun good nice guy Trudeau? and i just uh, yeah Everybody i know who knows him says he is you know i just and i just feel like we don't see that we don't see that and it's a shame you, you know, know well but as one whatever. liberal anyway. friend of mine told me um he's irreverent in a way that gets himself in trouble so his comms discipline has sucked a lot of the life out of him so that he doesn't say stupid things like whipping out a cf-18 like it's a penis like that's sort of where his humor I, takes him. I, I kind of wish. I kind of wish. Like he just Ralph Klein in this shit. It was just like, <laughs> whatever. I don't care. I mean, anyway, this is this is. I think we need to wrap it up because I need to go make some soup. Here um, is. You want my light point? We'll end it on this. Yeah, light point. Let's end it on that. I don't remember when we did this. Uh, I think maybe it was over the summer. You and I jointly did a takedown of the listicles. Canada, top-rated country yes. in the world. There's another, like one. One. There's oh, another no. one going around oh. and I saw it coming out of um, Twitter accounts, which I will uh, collectively lump together as uh, liberal Twitter. Liberal Twitter. I and it was Twitter. Canada number one. It's like, yeah, fuck yeah, we're number one. So oh, what do what? we do, Jen? What is our line policy when we what? see these things? We find it and we look at the methodology. Yep. Go to it the source. Is, it is a combination of weighted information from totally reputable institutions like the United Nations, the OECD, uh, the World Economic Forum, which will piss people off, I suspect, but also the the, the Olympic Committee. So I don't know. Oh. I don't know what's up with that one. Sure. But the majority, 50 percent of the overall weighting is a survey of 100,000 people in 120 different countries rating a country's brand. Oh, so, so it's yeah. Cool. In 120 different like countries, best branding. People think Canada has a great brand. Canada has a great brand. We have a great brand. I can't find Tylenol. Yep, but our flag is awesome, and we got it great. It's awesome. People like us. Yeah, but we can't buy. We're Tylenol. so likable. We're so likable. You like us enough to please ship us Tylenol over the border, like we were fucking Cuba. Well, you I, like us so much. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to Buffalo next week. Uh, yeah. Going to going to see a Sabres game. I uh, yeah. got got a, a few little pre Christmas shopping uh, in yep. the states. Yep. I'm going to get some Tylenol. Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't. Kids, my friends... I got two kids and two nieces, and everybody everybody's going to be swimming in Tylenol. Yeah, I've got uh, one of my friends. Uh, her mom lives in Creston, which is right by the border, and she sent me four boxes of Tylenol. I am not going to be hoarding that, of course. I will be sharing that among moms who need it because. This is also one of the things that really pissed me off about people claiming that the parents were hoarding the Tylenol and going like, how much Tylenol do you think we need? <laughs> like, we're not hoarding 20 boxes of fucking Tylenol. Like one or two boxes will get me through a season with two kids. Like, like that's the reason why I have four so that I can share it around when I know my friends are going to be struggling for it in a month because it's run out. Canada, number one for brand. Number one. Great band. Well, thanks everybody. All right, uh, Jen, I, I gotta. You're right. I gotta go have dinner as well. Uh, let's just email each other later. We'll figure out who's gonna write what. All right, cool. All right, thanks everybody. Take care. Bye. Well, thanks for listening, folks. This is Matt Gurney for Jen Gerson. This has been the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. Talk to you Monday. Have a great weekend.